Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Kani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is an assistant researcher at University Institute of Lisbon in Portugal. For over a decade, her research has focused on adopting a critical approach to examine the relation between representation, identities, power, discourse and communication and social change, namely regarding public participation in environmental issues and public responses to renewable energy and associated technology. She has 80 plus published works and is a co-editor of the journal Papers on Social Representations. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Susanna Baten. Our interview today is Nia Shemilansi. She's an undergraduate student in electrical and electronics engineering at Ashishi University. Her research focuses on developing low-cost sensors for use in air quality monitoring and dust soiling on solar PV measurements. Welcome to the show, Susanna and Nyasha. Thank you for your kind introduction, Shazad. I'm excited to dive in our discussion. The shift to lens carbon intensive and more sustainable energy system is centered around renewable energy sources such as solar, wind, hydro, biofuels, and others. According to the International Energy Agency, over 2022 to 2027, renewables are forecasted to grow by almost 2,400 gigawatts, equal to the entire installed solar power capacity of China today. This rapid expansion of renewables has brought us here in discussing about renewable energy colonialism with Dr. Susanna Battelle. Welcome to the show, Dr. Susanna. I'm going to jump right into our first question on renewable energy colonialism in the global south. In the global south, renewable energy colonialism perpetuates power dynamics that prioritize the energy needs of the global north over the energy needs of the global south. Despite the fact that many countries in the global south make access to electricity, for example, 597 million Africans did not have access to electricity and rely on harmful forms of energy, such as biomass for cooking. Approximately 600,000 lives are lost each year in sub-Saharan Africa due to exposure to biomass smog. The focus of renewable energy production in these regions is often centered around exports to the global north. This is evident in the case of green hydrogen, where the potential for energy poverty elevation in Africa is overshadowed by the emphasis on export to the European market. For example, I quote a statement from the European Investment Bank website, large-scale Green hydrogen generation will enable Africa to supply 25 million tons of green hydrogen to global energy markets, equivalent to 15% of current gas used in the European Union. Dr. Susanna, the followers of the podcast would like to know how colonialism mechanisms are at play here and also how can their government and policymakers prioritize the energy needs in their respective countries before they can look into feeding energy rich countries. Thank you, uh, Yasha, for uh, uh, your question and uh, and also Shazad for the uh, introduction and the invitation um, to to both of you, of you to be here. So that's a, a very uh, question, and and actually this uh, focus on green hydrogen is a very uh, relevant one. 
and uh, uh, and actually even here uh, in Portugal, from where I'm I'm speaking, uh, we're also uh, having now this rush uh, into this new goal, so say of the the green hydrogen as a, a key solution to to resolve climate change, and um, actually even if we we are in the in the global north, uh, but but still uh, in, uh, in the south of Europe, so a peripheral uh, region as well. Uh, that is also shaped by power relations with other northern countries. And so actually, we're also having exactly the same debate. Now, so uh, uh, green uh, hydrogen, uh, is it green first off? And, and that's what I, I will get to in a minute as well. So the way it is produced, can we really say it is green? And also for whom, also for, for whom is this national strategy being uh, proposed and, uh, and fostered? So thinking about um, uh, Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa uh, specifically, and and again also this now run for for green hydrogen, um, a lot of uh, issues come to play here uh, that make us think of it as as this renewable energy colonialism. So um, one of them is precisely even starting as I was saying by uh, the, this notion of uh, renewable uh, energy colonialism. Uh, allowing us to think uh, for whom uh, is this big produce, you know, as I was saying, uh, is also the case uh, for, for Portugal. So the, if we look at, at the, the rhetoric even behind these efforts and agendas to, to foster the production of green hydrogen, uh, we see that precisely uh, a lot of it is uh, with a view uh, towards economic growth and toward, towards uh, exporting it to uh, the global north and also uh, local regions and communities where it will be produced uh, and also their local resources uh, based on which their livelihoods depend a lot such as uh, water, uh, land, uh, agricultural uh, land and so on and so forth. They will be damaged and uh, taken for this purpose but uh, with uh, most of the benefits then to be exported as you said to um, other countries and, and other regions of the world, specifically in the global north. So that's uh, already a, a key aspect, obviously, of uh, what makes it renewable energy uh, colonialism. Um, and what that first aspect brings to the fore as well is precisely this issue that uh, it is being sold as green, but uh, actually, uh, for instance, as you you also highlighted, it uses water to to produce this this uh, green hydrogen, and uh, this means in turn that you should be in a region to produce it that is very uh, uh, that has uh, very uh, abundant uh, water, and uh, if not, you're not only probably contributing to further desertify uh, that area, but um, even to um, there's also uncertainty what will be the consequences for uh, water resources in the area as well out of this uh, process uh, for hydrogen, green hydrogen uh, production. The other key issue that is being debated as well, also related then with, with renewable energy colonialism, is precisely that then for it to be green, it implies that the, the electricity uh, generated to part the, this uh, uh, water and make the green hydrogen it needs to come from renewable uh, energy sources. And uh, what this often implies is then that there will uh, have to be uh, built uh, large-scale energy infrastructures such as big wind farms or uh, solar plants, 
uh, and so on and so forth, that will then uh, feed into uh, this green uh, hydrogen production, which in turn, these plants as well, they also have uh, often, uh, they also come with a lot of local impacts and impacts for communities. And uh, if they are not deployed in a way that involves everyone and uh, the local communities, regional communities and national communities, uh, etc., then uh, th those uh, harms will uh, for sure uh, be uh, even more. Now, so uh, often what happens is precisely that, is that there are no benefits for the local communities uh, and there are only uh, detrimental uh, effects. So it's often uh, done uh, through this top-down, technocentric and uh, extractivist uh, uh, perspective and approach. And, and that means precisely that who benefits then uh, from uh, uh, green hydrogen and all its components, so to say, uh, is mostly the big corporations that uh, often are financing uh, these infrastructures and also uh, sometimes to the national governments that allow uh, for, for this to happen in their territories. So in this sense, I think that if we think about how can uh, governments and, and policymakers then prioritize the, the energy needs of local communities and citizens in their respective countries before they look into feeding energy uh, rich countries is precisely by contesting this type of uh, rationale and process that leads to the deployment of these large energy infrastructures and these that feed these big agendas for uh, uh, green hydrogen as it is being done. So I think precisely what needs to be done is thinking more in a decentralized way, uh, in a way uh, in which uh, um, thinking about how can we uh, give electricity to everyone and to all communities is done uh, involving those communities and involving people and uh, therefore thinking about and for uh, the country and the region where these governments and these communities are, are located instead of just thinking about uh, economic growth at uh, a national state level, let's say. No? So that is really for uh, the state and not for its citizens. Oh, thank you, Dr. Susanna, for your answer. And I think you did a great job in analyzing this question. And I would just like to highlight like some of the points that you brought up, which includes, like, for example, we don't talk about, let's say, if we deploy this huge amounts of energy infrastructures, which will require abundant water, for example, in the case of green hydrogen, it's going to lead into water scarcity and many regions in Africa. There's already a water scarcity because of climate-induced drought in these recent years. So it's important to look at also the after effects and also we talk about asking a critical question like, who are these infrastructures built for? Are they built for the local community or for other people? And how ethical is that? And I think it also answers our second question that we we're going to ask you on uh, the desert uh, project for our podcast listeners, I'm just going to briefly read uh, what is supposed to be. The Desert Project was originally designed for wind farms and solar plants to be deployed in the north of Africa and Middle East to feed the European grid, which is an unequivocal uh, example of a renewable energy colonialism in the global south. So with that, I think he also talked about how this is also at play even where you are from in Portugal, where I didn't even think that any renewable energy colonialism could also happen in the global north. It is important to know that uh, renewable energy colonialism extends beyond global north-south relationships. 
and also operates through power dynamics between core and periphery region. Dr. Susanna, can you provide an example of renewable energy colonialism that is not specific to global North-South relations and how do our core periphery power dynamics come into play in these cases? Uh, yes. So um, obviously, I think the this renewable energy uh, colonialism idea uh, departs from global north, uh, global south uh, relations and from historical uh, colonialism. But I think it is uh, also very useful then to think about, if not uh, equal, obviously, because colonialism as it is, it has, again, a specific uh, history and is based on, on specific structural power relations. But I think it's very helpful precisely to make us think as well if, uh, again, if not equal, but uh, similar processes are happening also in the global north. And what we see uh, more and more uh, also today and also actually historically, um, so already for for uh, some centuries, is this uh, uh, continuous and uh, even increasingly exacerbated power dynamics uh, between uh, urban areas and rural areas in which uh, basically rural areas are seen more and more as uh, just a, a place for uh, resource uh, provision and to, to provide to urban areas, no? and, and urban areas as the, the consumers. And so it creates these core periphery dynamics that again are at, at the basis as well of renewable energy colonialism between the global north and the global south. And uh, what we, we see, for instance, again in Portugal, but also in other countries in the global north, is that that is happening also in the relation between then the urban and rural uh, territories, in which basically, uh, as uh, I was discussing regarding green hydrogen and the deployment of large-scale renewable energy generation uh, infrastructures in these uh, more uh, rural areas, uh, what happens is that, you know, is that uh, rural areas are almost these sacrifice zones that get all the costs and all the negative impacts of the construction of these infrastructures and uh, they don't get any uh, benefits that not they're not involved in deciding about those uh, projects uh, they uh, do not allow them even for for local communities even sometimes to stay in their communities and to thrive uh, in those communities in the long term so it's a, a similar type of, of dynamics that happens here as well and for instance here in portugal i've been accompanying it regarding wind uh, hydropower uh, plants and how uh, actually uh, throughout the last century this has been the case. Now these large, huge, really infrastructures with a lot of impacts have been constructed uh, and, and deployed in uh, rural uh, areas, inland territories with a lot of impacts for the local communities. And often even what happens is that they are deployed based on uh, discourses and rhetoric uh, of vocal socioeconomic development. And they are even sold uh, almost as these promises and myths of uh, development that people then are attracted to because precisely they want to stay in, in the, the places where they live and they like to live and they want to be able for uh, future generations to also be able to stay in those territories and to thrive there. And so people tend often even to accept these infrastructures as a sign of hope almost to towards that future. But actually then what we see is that often that's it. That's just rhetoric from the developers, from the, the politicians and governments that support these infrastructures. 
and uh, the, those promises then uh, actually uh, tend not to materialize. And so, uh, what what happens by happening is that these infrastructures even further contribute to the desertification and uh, depletion of these areas in terms of both the socioeconomic uh, development and then the people that that manage to stay and uh, and live there. So in that sense, I think that uh, this uh, uh, idea of renewable energy colonialism also as an analytical lens, so to say, so as uh, some glasses to look at uh, the renewable energy transition and which uh, inequalities is it creating as well and uh, which types of uh, further discrimination and injustices is it reproducing and, and creating anew. I think it's very important uh, uh, both in the relations between the global market and the global south, but also within the global north. And I think for that also something very important that is important as well for, for the case of the green hydrogen that you were uh, bringing to the discussion earlier is precisely also this idea that with uh, globalization and uh, the neoliberal capitalist system that we live in, uh, what uh, contributes also to this colonialism and these power relations is uh, uh, precisely these big uh, corporations, large corporations that uh, are often uh, foreign to the countries where they are exploring and extracting these uh, uh, resources and ex uh, exploring these communities. And uh, therefore, they really don't have their interests at heart. No, it's so it's it's often deployment of uh, infrastructures and these extractive activities in a very well colonialist and extractivist uh, way, uh, with with no connection and and no concerns for for local communities. Okay, thank you so much. So yes, yeah, so I think in Portugal as well, the hydro energy is a or dams are a great example of what you just are describing of energy colonialism in Portugal. And with that, I think I'm going to ask you a question because in relation to the USA and the world at large. So given the significant amount of land that will be required for wind farms to meet energy or consumption needs, how do you think we can balance the need for renewable energy with concerns around the land use and ecological impacts? Yes, so that's a, a very good question, and I think that also, uh, again, it links to to the first question that we were talking about, and uh, and, and I think it's really going forward. What we need is also a more degrowth uh, mindset and uh, economy and perspective. You know? So, so I think the even when we think about you know the right to have access to to energy and that everyone in the world can access that that right. Um, that needs to be thought uh, uh, about through also considering that uh, uh, some people in the world and specifically in the global north uh, really need as well to reduce their consumption of energy and the the, the modern way of life or uh, as uh, some authors put it, you know, this imperial mode of living that is uh, typical of the global north and that if you look even at some of the sustainable development goals and some of the, the policies that the European Union is uh, uh, supporting towards the, the green and digital transitions, actually, they don't want to change that that imperial load of living, no? So they want to just con continue with business as usual and renewable energy technologies uh, within this format, within this logic, will just 
be uh, you know continuing this economic uh, growth model no and and that for sure it will again reproduce existence inequalities uh, it will uh, uh, reproduce energy poverty uh, so the the ones that were previously uh, poor in different dimensions will most probably continue in being poor because uh, precisely the monos operandi so to say is exactly the same as our fossil societies that are anchored and based in uh, structural colonialism and inequalities racism sexism and uh, all of these structural uh, again inequalities that are constitutive of this model of neoliberal capitalism of of our society so therefore uh, i i think the the problem uh, that needs to be tackled is precisely that is to always think about these issues in conjunction and so thinking that we really need this the growth uh, perspective and uh, to allow us as well for uh, moving forward with the really renewable energy transition, but in a way that is uh, more equal to all and that also allows for more participation and uh, engagement of everyone in that process. And for that, we need uh, uh, more decentralized models for the energy transition. We need to take decisions closer to uh, communities that will be affected by that. Uh, we need to uh, uh, think precisely about uh, energy transitions that can be done more at that community and regional level, because even that's what allows us to prevent this uh, global north, global south, renewable energy colonialism. Uh, right, because the the problem here is often that you know that we uh, in in the models we use nowadays we we can be producing or and extracting resources and energy from certain places that are very far away from the places where they will be uh, consumed. And so obviously that also uh, helps with losing the trace of the negative impacts that uh, even, for instance, uh, getting rare earth minerals that are needed for wind farms have for local communities that are far away from where those wind farms are going to be deployed. So again, I think it's uh, the, the key might be precisely in thinking more about uh, renewable energy transitions through this logic of the growth on on one hand and decentralization and and these ethics of care for uh, everyone at a global uh, level and at the local level uh, all at the same time now in an integrated way thank you so much portugal uh, is at the forefront of the renewable energy transition in 2021 approximately 5,000 gigawatts hour of Electricity was generated in Portugal of which 88.5% from renewable sources and including roughly 45% generated by hydropower, mostly large-scale dams. Can you give examples of community contestations against hydropower plants in Portugal and also some examples of health-related harm or psychological harm provoked by hydropower infrastructure? So as I was saying, uh, we've we've been with uh, some colleagues uh, uh, doing some uh, research on hydropower plants uh, projects and how they were deployed uh, throughout the last century. And so that means uh, throughout the dictatorship that was imposed in, in Portugal for uh, several decades, and then uh, from that through to the democratic uh, period. Um, uh, that we uh, that started in 1974 and and still uh, today. 
and and what we see is precisely that uh, something similar in the deployment of these infrastructures uh, throughout uh, these different uh, socio-political regimes is uh, that uh, they are uh, deployed uh, in this logic of progress and of economic growth that is uh, a characteristic of uh, capitalism. And it is that logic that uh, also makes it with obviously the very uh, big differences between the socio-political regimes for individual freedoms and democratic ideals and, and rights. Uh, but that uh, transversal um, aspect of capitalism makes it precisely that then these infrastructures are uh, similarly deployed in a way that uh, disregards the, the impacts they have uh, for uh, local communities, for local socio-ecological uh, systems as well. And therefore, they, they create, uh, obviously, a lot of psychosocial negative impacts as well in, in the communities living nearby them. Uh, it was interesting, for instance, because a lot of this research to look uh, at psychosocial impacts in the beginning of last century, for instance, we we, we had to go to archival materials uh, to see how these psychosocial impacts were documented, and and it was interesting, for instance, to 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 see that uh, uh, in the 1950s or even 1960s, for instance, these dams now were were a completely uh, non-existent idea for local communities, and so. Uh, local communities uh, thought of them as a, a cut you know, in, in the river, uh, which uh, is, is quite interesting to think about that that's precisely what it is, is having like this wild uh, river that lives in uh, harmony with the communities nearby them and that is being almost cut and slaughtered in a way by, by these large uh, dams. And so in, in a lot of this work, we've documented precisely that type of psychosocial impact. That That's it. It happens a lot, obviously, when dams submerge villages. And that has happened also even in the in Portugal's uh, recent history, that uh, entire villages had to be relocated somewhere else because of the construction of these dams. But dams affect also other local communities that even if they don't have to relocate or their houses are, are submerged, that live nearby them. No? because they, they really affect the, the local environment and the, the livelihoods, therefore, that are dependent on, on it, uh, of the, the, the surrounding local uh, communities. And then what we, we managed to do with this archival research as well, which was very important uh, uh, too, was precisely to also then unearth almost, no, so, so bring to the fore and give voice to actually contestations to these hydropower plants that somehow also uh, happened during the dictatorship so many decades ago, even if obviously in a very different way than what uh, they could be or how how they could happen in the democratic period. But um, again, through these almost oral history materials, we uh, managed to identify that there were uh, communities and people that were against these stems no? and that uh, w would like to contest the, the construction of, of these dams then. And, and that has continued again from, from then to uh, uh, nowadays, not only with hydropower projects still that are presented uh, often in, in public um, policies and by the Portuguese government as renewable energy. But again, more and more uh, activists and academics have 
uh, contested that notion precisely because we know nowadays of the many social, environmental impacts, negative impacts that large dams can create. And so uh, more and more they are less considered, at least in these uh, contexts, as uh, renewable, as renewable energy. Uh, but on top of that, also uh, more recently, we have witnessed the, the same type of uh, uh, impacts uh, by wind farms and uh, more recently now by, by solar plants. So now um, the push in, in Portugal is, as I said, also for this green hydrogen idea, but that, that hasn't uh, really uh, started yet, at least in a more material way. But uh, also what has been happening more in the in the last years is the deployment of these large, huge uh, uh, solar plants as well. And, and that has also been very contested by, uh, by communities precisely because, for instance, we have this case in Alentejo in the south of Portugal where a community uh, started to uh, develop and implement this idea of a renewable energy community in which you, uh, so as a, as a community, you try to make it self-sufficient from a, an energy point of view by having uh, solar panels, say, but at the community scale or even at the household scale that are enough to uh, uh, make that community uh, self-sufficient. Uh, and, and so they picked up on this idea of renewable energy communities that is also uh, being uh, trying to be fostered in Portugal and in at the European Union level uh, through specific legislation and all that. And then uh, soon after they started to try and develop and implement this renewable energy community, they just heard that a huge uh, uh, solar plant precisely to feed into this green hydrogen uh, idea or that would be one of the, the purposes of it at least or could be. Uh, so this huge uh, uh, solar plant would be built also uh, very near where this renewable energy community was trying to be developed. And uh, obviously, uh, this made uh, this community to contest that uh, solar uh, plant precisely because what uh, often local communities want is these more smaller scale decentralized uh, options and not these large scale uh, infrastructures that um, ruin the, the landscape, ruin the the, the symbolic and uh, cultural relations that they uh, and attachments that they establish with those places and with those landscapes, and also sometimes even uh, farming uh, lands and other uses of the land that are uh, significant to uh, the local communities and to, to local livelihoods. Thank you so much, Dr. Susanna. So another interesting dimension to the year acceptance is the concept of NYMBY. Can you briefly talk about the concept NIMBY, which is not in my big card? How had developers, dismakers, the media and active protesters using the NIMBY rhetorically and, and what are the consequences? A lot of the, the research that I've done has been precisely looking at how this NIMBY or NIMBY uh, uh, idea now is used uh, by uh, developers and politicians, the media as well sometimes to uh, basically accuse uh, local communities that oppose these infrastructures of being uh, just irrational and ignore, ignorant and selfish. No? Uh, so it's a way for them to delegitimize that opposition by saying, well, you're only opposing that solar plant, for instance, or that hydropower plant because you are a NIMBY, no? because you are being selfish. 
uh, because you live next to it. Now, if it was being built uh, somewhere else, uh, you wouldn't uh, care about it. And uh, actually what uh, research has been showing uh, more and more is that NIMBY uh, doesn't stand out you know, as a, an explanatory framework, so to say, uh, for local opposition, uh, for local communities' opposition to these uh, renewable energy FN structures, infrastructures, it actually doesn't, doesn't fit. No, it's not, it's not a good explanation, precisely because what research uh, has shown more and more is that what is at stake is the fact that these uh, processes are uh, uh, made in a very top-down, imposing and even dictatorial way, uh, uh, so to say. Uh, so they, they're not up for discussion. They don't involve uh, conveniently uh, the local communities and all the other stakeholders that will be affected by uh, these projects. Um, as we've uh, already discussed a little bit here also, what happens is that uh, uh, even when there are some public consultation processes, um, those are very tokenistic. So they actually, uh, you know, might then in involve uh, sl slight uh, little changes in the projects, but uh, not, for instance, uh, a real discussion about if the project should go ahead or not uh, in that specific location or somewhere else. Uh, and so on and so forth. And so in this way, the people in local communities, obviously, they feel uh, powerlessness and uh, they feel disempowered even from uh, deciding about their own lives, no? their own communities, sometimes even uh, in the in the case of the, the submergent of villages through hydropower plants, as we've seen, even they lose the, the control and the, the autonomy over their own houses and households. So. Uh, uh, obviously, the, it, it's all these dimensions of injustice that uh, creates local opposition. And that's what uh, activists and researchers have been uh, increasingly uh, uh, making more clear no? and, and showing that it is not about NIMBY, it is not about people not knowing what can be the benefits of hydropower plants or uh, just reacting emotionally because it's uh, being built close to them, but it's about them knowing what is important for them and for their uh, uh, local uh, communities and uh, for their uh, culture. So researchers are uh, only even more recently you know, being more aware also of the, the dangers of using NIMBY as an explanation and again, Actually, even for researchers, as I've, I've also uh, highlighted in a lot of my work, that uh, move is only now uh, starting to happen. But uh, for developers and even for, uh, as I said, politicians, governments, local authorities, the media, uh, NIMBY is still uh, very often used to uh, just dismiss uh, when local communities oppose these uh, infrastructures. And obviously, it is very helpful for them to uh, precisely dismiss and legitimize uh, local communities' uh, opposition. And so that's why I think it is helpful to more and more not use the, the concept of NIMBY uh, or only use it to show how actually we are talking about issues of injustice when uh, people oppose these uh, energy infrastructures and trying to engage policymakers and local authorities and developers more and more through this lens of uh, injustice and the inequalities these projects often create. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bama. It was really wonderful having you here. 
on this episode. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you, discussing about energy, colonialism in the global south, in global north as well. I really like to thank you uh, for taking your time to come and share your over a decade experience with us. Thank you so much, Nyasha. It was really great to, to discuss these issues with you. And uh, yeah, thank you for, for all the very important uh, questions that you brought to, to our conversation as well. And thank you, Shafa, for hosting us today. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Susanna Batul, and our interviewer, Nyasha Milansi, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.